Hello to everyone watching online and to everyone joining us here in person in the room to today's hybrid event, Achieving More Transparency in EU Policymaking, the Potential of AI. My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based in Brussels. I'm coming at you live from the Euractive Studios at the heart of the EU quarter. Now, we know that we're living in an era where many people have a natural distrust of institutions. The explosion of the internet and the accompanying bombardment of information has shaken the trust people once had in old ways of receiving information. This has made building bridges between citizens, organizations, EU institutions, and European governments harder than ever. So when it comes to making European policy understandable, accessible, and transparent for all citizens across Europe, it's no easy task. Article 10 of the Treaty on European Union states that open decision-making should be carried out as closely as possible to the citizens. Access to public information, also known as the right to know, is vital for a functioning democracy. With the rise of disinformation over the past years, artificial intelligence, or AI, can be seen as a prominent tool that could help strengthen democracies, if properly implemented and regulated. By using data-based scrutiny, AI could help achieve more transparency in the EU, preventing disinformation as well as ensuring better access to quality information for citizens. We know that right now AI is being increasingly used also in the media sector as an essential tool to improve the quality of content and provide more accurate information to audiences. Many believe that AI has big potential to shape the future of European media. But at the same time, there are a lot of concerns about AI. Could it be misused or abused? Could it actually end up undermining citizens' trust in institutions and in media? These are the questions we're going to tackle today with our panel of experts, who I will introduce to you now. Here in the room, we have David McCoy, CEO of Euractive. We have Mark Angelo Bizotti, founder and CEO of PolicyInsider.ai. And joining us virtually online, we have Mia Petra Kumpula-Natri, a center-left Finnish member of the European Parliament, and Laurence Dirix, an academic at ULB and UIB, the University of Bergen, and with Nordis, the Nordic Observatory for Digital Media and Information Disorder. Thank you to all the panelists here in the room and online for joining us. Mia Petra, I'd like to start with a question for you, really coming from the lawmaking perspective. Where could transparency in the European Parliament be improved? And how is transparency working right now in the European Parliament? Well, thank you for a very interesting title for the debate. And I eagerly listen to the, the follower, uh, other, other speakers here as well. I, I think we can learn something new. But uh, for, uh, transparency is in the core, and, and it has been a lot uh, debated as well. Uh, I know that the um, Nordic countries had a tradition that everything should be open if you don't declare it uh, a secret or uh, stamp it with a secrecy. So uh, when Finland joined in the 90s, it used to be more the tradition that you had to ask specifically to get something and... and the whole uh, logic was like opposite that why to open something so the transparency all and all 
needs still to be improved and i eagerly look for the uh, technical possibilities that we are waiting the whole society to take also the european institution to, to explore the new uh, possibilities but when we talk about the, um, the transparency in the parliament uh, i need to mention the eu ethics party that parliament has the opinion already from last september and we i really regret we don't have the commission representative here to tell the very latest uh, story where it uh, stands as it uh, is supported uh, with a broad political sphere and then and also another one uh, the interinstitutional transparency register so this uh, hopefully creates the trust uh, from the citizens to the institutions that we policymakers staffers and all uh can be analyzed uh, the stories media can take the stories uh of our linkages and and how we meet and listen to the stakeholders for me that is very natural i do listen and meet with the people i uh, do like the opinions and also those i don't and same with the companies those who do the good job and those whose job i want to improve by uh, legislating so I, I think these uh, two elements are quite traditional ones. So uh, what um, technical solutions could bring more is, of course, the analyzing a lot of information, uh, as that is how normally the technological solutions like AI are used for. When you have a massive amount of information, then you can structure them better, and then you can even uh, propose uh, analysis and also even prognosis. And I, I think uh, I'm a speaker on behalf always of the real-time data. And that's something we are lacking when you do the traditional way, collecting the maps and putting the uh, papers on, uh, um, on row and then analyzing the things. We lose sometimes the most accurate data. So I see a lot of uh, possibilities if there is a political will, and I hope there is. I must still say that internally our IT systems, when we work on our everyday life, amendments to the legislation and everything, it is still the technology of the 90s. Not even hybrid link is ever used in our internal documents to find something. And that is something I'm very as made of, but that's life. It's interesting what you say about the, the geographic particularities when it comes to transparency. Maybe we can come back to that during the discussion. Um, I should also mention, of course, you guys in the audience will be able to ask your questions uh, yourself to the panelists as well as the people in the room. Uh, online, you can type in the questions right there on the screen starting now. I have them here on my tablet. I'll ask them later. Also, you guys in the room can just scan the uh, QR codes that came on your seats, and you can also ask your questions. I'll read them out to the panelists. Laurence, let's turn to you next. You've really been looking at these issues, particularly when it comes to information, disinformation. How can AI be used to combat disinformation in various domains? Technologies help analyze and provide insight into vast amounts of data. They can help to detect potential information disorders or to verify them. Current research is really proactive in this area, but AI systems still need technical and social improvements. The first challenge is to go beyond a deterministic approach, according to which tools are necessary because of the increasing prominence of information disorders. 
Online social interactions contribute to their large-scale accessibility, and search engines contribute to putting them forward because they do not assess the credibility of the receipt they provide. These two phenomena explain why lies spread faster than the truth online. However, the technology alone is not sufficient to combat the social problem of information disorders. AI is not an end, but a mean. We also need professionals. So at the Nordis Hub, which aims to find information disorder in the Nordic countries, with gathering researchers and fact-checkers, we interview 19 professionals on their use of AI to support their practices. The fact is that they tend to go to the usual tools of online investigative, either because they don't know which AI tool could help them, or because they don't know if they are already using them because the technology behind the tool remains obscure. They also say being regularly asked to test new tools, but they don't always have the time to develop specific skills. Here we come to the second challenge related to a design center approach that empowers users and and builds trust by providing intuitive control and a clear explanation of the results. In addition, when it comes to talking about transparency, it's not only about the process, but also about the data on which this system rely. Because without data, you cannot have artificial intelligence. So tools are not magic ones, but the risk is that this technology only support organizations that can afford them. Therefore, the third challenge is related to the funding often supported by big US tech players. Making these players pay fair taxes to finance public programs will be much other and contribute to making them accountable. It is here where universities should have a more active role to play. They have the knowledge and the skills for research and development. So supporting responsible responsible AI to fight information disorder is also a question of responsible funding politics that require a long time and global vision to guarantee sustainability. Because if programs stop, Okay, we won't search on fact-checking and on false information, but this phenomenon will continue uh, to to widespread. So it is, I think, a really huge question to tackle uh, for now. Thanks a lot. I think that's particularly interesting what you say about the technology really being at the heart, that is the artificial part of the, the artificial intelligence. Um, David, let's turn to you next. I mentioned at the beginning that AI is becoming an increasingly important factor in media. And that's what you're representing on this panel. What do you see as the role of journalists in open government and transparency? And we're here in the Euractive newsroom. We have this whole newsroom full of journalists here behind us. Um, if we need these AI tools, does that mean all these people aren't doing their jobs right behind us? Well, you would imagine, you would imagine that uh, organizing our own event, I would be able to brag about what we are doing. Thanks, Dave. Um, no, I mean, we have 100 journalists at Euractive uh, in different cities around Europe, focusing on different policies, different countries. Uh, and yeah, on the other side of the street here, in the institutions, there's about 60,000 people that are working uh, for the institutions. So there is no way we can cover everything. That's just impossible. And if any media is telling you that they're covering everything, well, that's just misleading us. I mean, that's just not uh, an option. And in addition to that, 
EU policy is getting more complex every day. I mean, we just released the uh, Green Deal. It opens I mean, 15 to 20 different files, uh, just transport itself. We're talking about biofuels, we're talking about agri-fuels, we're talking about electric vehicles. All of that is extremely complex. I mean, if someone understands what is, I know, we, we, we can add topics like road dust, which is a topic that is not even touched yet uh, in this and, and will come up as well at one point. And, and Dave, you're doing that as well. I mean, this evening, you, this afternoon, you were moderating a topic on agri-food and methane. Now you're moderating a topic on transparency and policy. That's basically what all our colleagues and all our users are doing every day. We're trying to pretend that we are knowledgeable on some topics where we just scratch the surface and we are not the experts on those topics. And so, yeah, that's basically what our journalists are trying to do. And, and, and where us as a media we can help is that our journalists are basically trying to cover a topic before it becomes a topic, which is extremely uh, valuable and relevant. They're trying to analyze where it's going to, what is the timeline of those different policy topics, uh, trying to provide some links on some of the documents that are uh, useful. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of documents. There's a lot of data that needs to be integrated into this process. We can hire an army of interns and try to analyze all that, or we can try to do it ourselves. But frankly, that would not be a good use of our time. I think that human brains should focus on things that are different than just gathering the data. And so that's basically... And, and what's important that's actually is that we wouldn't want to have something, a topic that is left behind, something that we didn't notice, something or someone that we didn't see coming as being an influencer of this process or someone that is important in this process. And even our journalists are having this fear. Uh, when I'm talking to our, to our team members, well, they are, they are sharing that as well. I mean, they know the topic, they know the community, but they know that there might be things that they didn't see coming or, that, or some people that they didn't see coming. And so that's basically the reason why we at Euractive had decided to explore what AI, and I would rather say technology as a whole, there are some AI models, uh, what these can do for us, what these can do for our users, for clients, uh, but also for teams. And so we have partnered with Policy Insider, which is an expert company that have the knowledge, and I'll let Mark Angelo uh, present that and, and talk more about it. And, and basically what we're doing is that since a while we are now listening to the users, listening to the people in the market and trying to understand what are the needs beyond what we are able to deliver. And so that's basically the reason why we're also organizing these kind of events where we're kind of, and I'll try to not to speak too much today, uh, which for the ones who knows me is not an easy thing for me, but I'll try to listen more uh, than anything else. Uh, we have made already a lot of, uh, talked to a lot of users, talked to a lot of clients to kind of get a little bit what would be their wish list if we're having kind of a tool that could uh, help identify that. And yeah, I invite everybody already in the room and online to share as well what is their wish list, what are the kind of things that they see uh, being missing. I can talk more if you want, Dave, later on what are the things that we hear already uh, in terms of wish lists from some uh, users in the community. But yeah, we are... I mean, I'm personally very proud of the work that we are doing at Euractive, but I also recognize that we can do better. And so that's basically what uh, we try to do is to build an EU, to build a Europe, which is more efficient and more transparent. It's true for journalists in this town, as we look outside of the window here at this behemoth of a building next to us, the Berlaymont, where the commission is based, it produces a dizzying output of policies and 
I think, well, certainly for journalists who first arrive in town, it's even hard to figure out what's important and what's not important because there's a lot that's not important next door. Uh, but it is a, it can be a very intimidating thing to handle, and that's where AI could really come in handy when you're especially looking at institutions that have a very big output and you have a limited press corps as we have here in Brussels. Mark Angelo, let's turn to you next. Um, so I, I talked about policyinsider.ai. Tell me, why did you start your company, which is focused on transparency through AI? Thank you, Dave. Um, like David, I, I like to talk a lot, so I try to keep this to, to three elements that, that when I walked over here came to my mind and thought, like, these are three moments in, in my um, professional career where I realized I need to do something. And the, the first one was really 15 years ago, I worked in a, as an intern in the Bundestag. And I, it was literally my first day. And um, I was asked to prepare the files for the committee meeting just afterwards. And so I downloaded everything from the German parliamentary system, info system, on the Bundestag documents. And then I saw that there were documents about uh, EU proceedings. And I asked, where can I find these documents? And no one in the office knew. So that was the first moment where I thought, like, this is weird. Much later, I found out that we had the exact same debate that was debated in the committee that day was also happening in the UK, um, Parliament. And I thought, this is ridiculous. How can you talk one thing in Berlin uh, and try to reinvent the wheel, whereas the colleagues uh, in Brussels are talking the same topic? Um, after my time in Bundestag, <coughs> I worked in public affairs, and uh, I have a consultancy that advises um, its clients across different geographical regions. And what we try to do is to, to identify opportunities that are linked to de uh, policy developments. And then we had customers coming, can you look into what's happening in, f in France? And I said, well, I can do this because I speak French. Uh, but then they came and said, can you look into Spain? I said, well, sorry, I can't, I don't speak Spanish. Uh, and even if I spoke Spanish, I wouldn't be able to understand what's happening and what a certain policy document uh, out of um, the Spanish Senate, for instance, means. And that leads me to my third point is, even if you know this, you can Google stuff. Someone said before, you know, there is, uh, there is uh, platforms, there's search engines that you can use to research policy developments. But you have absolutely no idea what a certain document that comes up means. Not even talking about disinformation, but just the fact that something totally, has a totally different meaning, whether this is f coming from a backbencher or some th someone from a government party, for instance. So I thought you can, basically, if I can say so, you can Google everything but I don't think you can Google politics. So I wanted to put a, a platform together that um, is totally unbiased, but meaning that it only collects data from public institutions that only um, enables the user to see what's happening without any pre-processing. So pre-processing, I mean adding, cutting, selecting, but saying we enable the user to, to look at search words, policy areas, um, and to identify what's relevant to them and then do the processing. So when we talk to, uh, to David, for instance, looking at how can journalists use the tool? How can you make aware? How can you combat that fear of missing out, something that I've experienced 15 years? You're always afraid that someone knows more than you and that uh, in best case, he's just going to make you lo uh, look bad because you're supposed to know and you didn't. Or in the, in the worst case, that you, you know, can really cause you harm because you didn't see something happening. So this is why I start with some colleagues, Policy Insider, where we try to bring this together. Um, let's talk about some of the peculiarities of 
the European Union when it comes to transparency. Marcangelo, you mentioned the issue of language. That is an issue we have to deal with here that uh, other places like Washington, for instance, doesn't have to deal with, that that can be a real inhibitor to transparency, particularly, I think, in the council. Um, and, and we know that the different EU institutions here have different levels of transparency, in my opinion, I would say the European Parliament is the most transparent. The European Council, by far, by far, by far, is the least transparent. It's notoriously opaque. Um, Mia Petra, putting it to you with that compliment about the transparency of the Parliament, um, what, what do you think the other institutions in this town could learn from what the Parliament does? I mean, the Parliament live streams its hearings. It has uh, documents readily available online. We know that's not the case for the Council. What can other institutions learn? Uh, and maybe what can some national governments learn from the European Parliament's transparency? Well, uh, transparency all in all is a, is a bit of a challenge in, and I, I also want to steer the discussion here that the analysis side because even you have a transparent access to the documents you have transparent access to the discussions there are some moments you need to talk and really negotiate and uh, so if if uh, they are open then there are is an unofficial forum where they negotiate. So I feel some uh, ideas uh, for the final negotiations that you have the trusted uh, small circle to sit down and overcome the disagreements. But then also I think that the, trans uh, the good transparency is that the debates are still open. Uh, but then I think uh, from the parliament also the council sends the uh parts of the meetings that are opened uh, and you can uh, watch them uh, i remember when my country finland had the presidency we were like uh, watching that how many uh followers there will be when they open a part of the uh, council meetings and it was maybe more intense than in hundreds so then uh, what i see as a technological need here to help uh, help us and help the journalism is to make a kind of a sense of the lot of data that we do and have and handle. And there nowadays, I, I think the NGOs, the researchers and media are the ones that really wrap it up. Um, but uh, what I wish uh, is, is I would target my hopes for the commission because they have right to initiate. And that really is the basis for the legislative proposal. So what that proposal has eaten is very important how the impact assessment was carried which countries were analyzed what was the take they had to to propose something on the uh, climate legislation as as the example here was on the biofuels whatsoever so uh all this is very very crucial and i think uh, this process needs to even have add up um, transparency and that is uh, what I, I really wish. So uh, my sympathy for the journalism working around the EU is that there is so many phases, the preparation, the legislative proposal, then it comes to the parliament, splitting the different committees, a, a lot of like thousands of amendments, and then which is the good moment to take it up, to tear it uh, open for the uh, people, and then you talk to the national uh, uh, media. They wondered whether they should be interested at all in the negotiating phase or before, or only when they are 
actually putting in the, the national legislation or implementing uh, an act. Uh, and th there, I think, uh, also kind of uh, legislative trains could be analyzed and then pinpoint there the points of uh, um, possibility to, to influence. And that would enhance the democracy. Yeah, that's a good point that there's so many different points in the EU lawmaking process that it's actually very hard to tell where you should intervene and get the word out where you could make the biggest difference. David, you wanted to come in on that? I mean, it's it's a bit like ideation. I mean, you, you don't know exactly when the idea comes from some kind of bubbles to something which is a bit more concrete. And here is this multiplied by X for a long process and long organization, long institutions. And so I think, I mean, first of all, I, I, I do agree this, uh, it's a challenging job for reporters or for anyone that is covering it. I think it's also a challenging job actually for any people in institutions. I want to kind of really ask them to kind of reflect a bit on the whole process. When is the moment where these ideas, this converse to something which is more concrete? It's not always the same time, but that is really the moments which are useful and, and which is those are the moments of transparency in a, in a good in a good democracy that's the moments where you want to add a bit of transparency and so it's I think a job for everybody outside institutions but also inside institutions to reflect on this ideation process and what are the moments in those in this process where we get to something which is a bit vague to something which is a bit more concrete, which is a bit more stone kind of. Um, it's not an easy one. And I, I, I want to add, indeed, Parliament has having a great job in terms of transparency. I think one of the strengths of Parliament as well, I mean, we always say trans uh, Parliament is probably one of the most transparent institutions. I think one of the great jobs they have done is also in terms of structuring the data, structuring documents. Uh, when we're talking about what is an advice that the parliament could be given to the to the council uh, and and to maybe other institutions as well? I think the, the structuring of the document is probably a key for people that are external to be able to kind of better understand what is the process, what are the kind of different timeline documents that are key, that are important, that are driving the process. Yeah, it's uh, definitely in my experience, the time in which media and campaigners tend to jump on an issue is when it's at the parliament. Uh, and I think that's surely because the parliament is the most transparent. But we know that probably the most important time is before the proposal has come out, when it's sitting across the street at the Berlaymont and they're ringing up the national capitals, particularly two national capitals finding out what's going to fly as a proposal, that process is completely opaque. And usually, I mean, it's very hard as a journalist to sell a story that, oh, there's going to be this proposal eventually, and there's these talks taking part. It's a lot easier to cover the more public-facing part, which is always the parliament part. But then, of course, after that, you have the council part, which again goes back into the opacity. So it's it, the, the time when the media tends to actually cover these issues the most is maybe not the most... Uh, influential time when people tend to jump on it. I wanted to follow up, David, you made a point about structuring documents. Um, Laurence, let me put this to you because it's also, Mia Petra made this point as well, that you could have all the transparency in the world, you can uh, live stream to the Finnish presidency's um, uh, council meetings, but if nobody's watching, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound if no one's there to hear it? Uh, is it just about making information available, or do you really have to structure it in a way that people can actually understand it so basically I think that the, the the main problem nowadays is the information abundance so for the audiences it's a bit difficult to to know uh, where to go 
Um, and there is also another problem is that they inform, they, they get the information mainly, uh, mostly from the social network. And on social network, you can know if it's true or if it's false. You don't have something, a label, a trust label on the, the information provider. And third, there is also uh, the question of trust uh, between the audiences and the media. So I refer you to the latest report for the Reuters uh, Institute of Journalism. And it was really interesting to see that in the different um, European countries, the level of trust towards the news media is really different. And it is um, a kind of correlate with the level of trust uh, from these audiences towards the politics. So I think that uh, the biggest work is just to, to, to rebind uh, all of the, um, the links um, between uh, the, the audiences, the news media, the politics and everything. That's really hard work uh, to, to take in charge. And um, from my point of view, only developing like uh, media literacy, news media literacy, that's something really important uh, to to make the citizens aware that if they are well informed, it is really a democratic um, way for them to participate uh, in the society. Mark Angela, let me put this question to you about structuring the data also, because we know that uh, in the way, I'm not sure if we quite have called it AI yet, but kind of data scraping tools that we've had for a long time here in town uh, for legislation. Uh, I think they've been a bit hit or miss up till now because it can sometimes just feel like a document dump and it's, it's still very hard to actually know how to use it or find what you're looking for. How can AI make the difference into making things understandable and searchable uh, and not just available? Excellent question. I think there's, there's, there's several elements to it. And I think it's, it starts with the abundance of, of information there is. And I mean, what, you, what you've seen in other areas, booking hotel, for instance, you always have these aggregators for everything because there's just so much information that you need this. There's a trend or the, the, the user wants to have this one point where they go and say, I can find everything. And they wants to be unbiased and for some we all know that you know they have a certain commercial interest that goes beyond what you are obviously seeing but but in a general there's this trend for for aggregating data so i, I think that's that starting transparency is creating this one platform or this type of platforms where you can access this data um, and then the structuring is comes with it i mean it, it goes about how do you what do you expect the user want that they want they will be wanting to see and um, I mean, there's a lot of AI tools, basic tools, that already help structure the data automatically. Um, I mean, just to give you a very stupid example, but uh, a, a, a document dump, unless you tell um, for each document what type of document it is, whether it concerns healthcare or, or mobility or, or transport policies, um, you will have to do this auto, um, manually. Uh, and many uh, parliament databases have manually annotated data, which is a lot of documents that you need to annotate, especially if you start collecting them. So you can train an AI to recognize what policy era document is from, for instance. Uh, and my example is always not every document that mentions a pharmacy is about healthcare. It could be about urban development. So how do you filter uh, documents that mention, if you're interested in, you know, you, let's assume you're a pharmacist, you want to know what's happening on pharmacy policies. You want to see what's actually happening on urban development or what's happening on healthcare, which are 
totally separate areas and totally different people dealing with it. And um, these are simple tools that start helping you structure the data. And then you can go on and, and in, uh, if you found something that's relevant to you, see whether others, uh, other documents, other policy developments or, or policy makers um, work around this topic so you can start building your opinion based on a selection of, of documents. And uh, I agree with what has been said. Of course, you have to know uh, on what criteria this is, is done or what, what the commercial interest is behind. But assuming there is none, um, then you can... Um, I mean, there's no, 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 no interest in pushing one data or one data set in, instead of one other. Uh, then you can create, a, I think, a very structured uh, data that is also intuitive for the user to, to, to look at. Um, Mia Petra, I wanted to... Uh, come back to the idea of kind of geographic differences in transparency. You mentioned the Nordic model, which is very much focused on transparency. We know that that model is not as ingrained in other parts of Europe. How do you build a real pan-European transparency outlook, transparency model, when you're dealing with different cultures that have a different attitude toward transparency and a different history of transparency? Well, all in all, it's about the trust. So that was mentioned here and, and that uh, I think uh, the Nordic trust lies on the openness. And, and, and I think also the money is also always a good uh, a sponsor. Then when you are really asking for the how the money is used, then you create a good uh, ways to open the uh, budget uses, for example. There I have uh, other country examples how to really um, also make pictures of the pu public uh, budget uses, for example. But uh, for uh, us, it is uh, at the same time, we trust our authorities, uh, uh, we trust the kind of uh, public services, but they are open. So I don't know which is a hen and which is an egg. So, so that uh, kind of uh, mutual trust uh, is uh, a glue in the society of the Nordic model. But I think uh, also that working on the European Union level, that also could then help the, the national uh, member states to get used to the openness of the, the documents uh, idea. And, and actually we have many court cases and, and examples that yes, the, the transparency of the documents is a basic rule in the European Union and then really uh, links uh, to the national uh, policy making as well. But I think here, besides the the uh, government stands, a lot of uh, NGOs asking for it and the media. So also, uh, unfortunately, often it takes good leaps when some uh, um, frauds are revealed, for example. Normally, a little crisis helps us to take steps further. So when you see the malfunctioning ways in the public, that, that is very important then that that will be changed. So transparency is also another way, a cheaper way for a lot of control. And that's maybe the cultural thinking that when you are open enough, you don't need that much closed and then uh, kind of reporting and then reporting needs a monitoring. And then again, that the system deploys a lot of work, uh, which could be replaced by more transparency on the, the documents and, and policy making in the end. I, guess it's I a hope bit that like answered a... some thinking. Yeah, sure. 
it's a bit like the horse meat scandal of 10 years ago. People start don't start thinking about uh, the problems in the uh, supply supply food supply chain in that case until uh, something goes wrong. And I guess we could have the, the policy equivalent of horse meats uh, that can spur more transparency. Um, Laurence, given that there are different um, attitudes towards transparency in different cultures and different geographies, how do you think we can build a, a European attitude uh, toward transparency? And also, have you noticed in your research any difference between, um, or any correlation between the amount of disinformation in a particular society, a particular institution, and that society or institution's transparency. Does it make a difference in the the degree to which misinformation can spread? So basically uh, you will you will find different kind of information disorders. So you have uh, like during the COVID-19 crisis some, uh, that was more about disinformation and misinformation. What you saw, it was more um, people uh, related to complotist uh, theories. And with the uh, Ukraine war, it is more related really to propaganda. So so you see you have different kinds of, of, of types of uh, disinformation. Um, so... Basically, uh, even though uh, these troubles are fact-checked, that doesn't mean that the people will agree with the result. That's something really, really difficult uh, to tackle for the, the fact-checkers in particular, because uh, you won't uh, change easily people's mind. If they do believe that the vaccine will kill them, they won't change their mind so easily. So... Um, <laughs> It's it's not um, it's not enough to to tell if it is uh, well fake or true or it's really not enough. It's about uh, as I said previously about media literacy, news media literacy, and education. So of course uh, the use of um, AI uh, can um, help to provide more depth in the inside. But paradoxically, uh, AI is a kind of opaque. You don't know how it, how it works. So uh, maybe that's something that would be interesting. It's to provide more explanation about the process, about how from this statement we get the result. And that might help. So uh, I think we are in a society where that needs a lot of pedagogy, unfortunately. But um, it's due, maybe due to, to this abundance in which we are living. Yeah, David, what do you think about this, this paradox that Laurence was talking about, that AI itself can be kind of opaque in how it works? Yeah, I mean, data is, is obviously not enough. Documents are not enough. I agree with Laurence that there's a question of education as well, uh, education on a critical aspect, education of uh, to, to, to think through this and, and to understand how do you use documents. But if we just feed documents uh, on, on the market or to citizens, I mean, we'll have as much information, as much disinformation uh, that are arising from it. And, and that's why, I mean, yeah, 
I believe, but you would expect me to say that, I believe there's a big role for media uh, on that. I don't think that's uh, data alone or AI alone could uh, make the work. That's where I think I believe very strongly in kind of combination between media and AI, AI helping, AI and technology helping media getting their hands onto the right information, onto the right documents to be able to kind of tell the story which is behind those documents. I don't think you can really do that without one or the other. I think it's kind of a, a combination of the two. And it's needed to have uh, the, the support of AI, to have the support of technology to help media doing a better job. Let's talk about who exactly should be doing the um, the, the policing here. Maybe not the policing, but the transparency ing, if that was a verb. Mark Angela, we know that, I mean, you could make the argument that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, that if the commission has not really succeeded in being transparent up till now, then it might be naive to think that AI could suddenly flip that equation and enable the commission to invent these transparency systems itself. Do you think it should actually be outside groups, civil society coming in, the commission offers their data to civil society, they run an AI system to make it transparent. Would that work better or is that opening up a whole can of worms that makes things more complicated? I just realized when I talked about the, you know, the aggregated hotel and book, uh, flight bookings, what has it led to is that hotels are much more transparent about the rates. Many uh, of, um, companies are much more um, thinking about how do I make my um, information available. So um, I think you have to look at both at the same time. I think that there needs to be a, a constant pressure and uh, initiatives from civil society saying like, we provide the information, we make sure that we get everything. Uh, and at the same time, this forces I think the institutions to also think about, well, if I want to keep the, the, the authorship or you know, the ownership of, of, of these documents and the interpretation potentially, uh, then I have to do put more effort into, into making them better accessible. So, um, so I think it's, you know, it's push and pull. Um, I don't think that most of the lack of transparency is, is, um, is meant to be. I think it just happens. I mean, if you think about just even if in your company, how you communicate, do you, how do you make sure that everyone in your company has the same or, you know, has the same information? It's always complicated because some people communicate this way, the other one that way. Some people prefer press releases, some other goes on Twitter. You know, I mean, we've seen the, the paradigm in the US where the whole uh, government um, communication channel switched from one president to another and then back. Uh, so I think the systems have to adapt. And... Um, um, and I think technology can help, yes. Um, Mia Petra, you know, it could be that government institutions could want to be more transparent but just don't have the ability to do so or don't have the ability to do so well. Um, what do you think about this idea of civil society being allowed access to data and running such transparency AI systems for government institutions? I think we have to be open for um, ideas like that because in, in general when we legislate we really try uh, to open up the public data. There are many many rules since the open uh, uh, ideas for the data uh, and then also um, there, there are even special exemptions for the research. 
So why not also here to have the research? So then it's accumulated data when needed. Of course, the privacy needs to be protected. So uh, I'm I'm always wishing to have the NGO by by my side uh, on on the decision makings, having the public debate. So there is a role for politicians here. So it's not bureaucracy. It's it's a, a living democracy. And policymakers are sometimes quite good to talk with the people on the market square on the weekends in their home cities about Brussels. So, but uh, that's uh, really one point. But I wanted also to refer what the Dr. Dietrich said here, that sometimes creating this kind of uh, analysis is also costly. So who can then have the access for that? Is it the the biggest media houses? And then we read the news of the biggest media houses and hopefully they are not uh, too big uh, price tags for the information. And that is very basic to the democracy. So also then not only the rich researchers, not only the richest lobbyists who can then buy, analyze the data uh, is a concern so that we can have everybody on board on the social dollar debate, setting the social goals and then the legislation. But yes, I, I wouldn't say no for governments opening up the data for the NGOs and, and uh, researchers. Mark Angela, you wanted to respond? Yes, just because I realized that there are institutions that have, you know, open uh, data platforms or where you can access um, with very low technical resources the data sets. And my experience is that you can also really talk to them, you know, discuss that and they're very open for it and very responsive. And that, um, let's say, for instance, the German Bundestag encourages the use of the data for, um, for wider use. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing, I fully agree on, 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 the, on the cost thing. What I, what I believe is that um, AI always has the potential of being much, much cheaper than anything else uh, because you can scale it and you, you don't need... I mean, once the platform is established, it can deal with all the data, no matter whether um, it is from one institution or another, so the, um, you know, the, the, the cost scale is, um, is very different. So it makes it usually much more accessible than if you had to have people physically going through all these documents. Like I said before, the annotation. If you had to annotate all the documents that are released every day and, and put them in a database and say, this is about this and this is about that, and I, I write a, a, a five-line teaser about it, this is, is, it's just not feasible. And it's uh, uh, not even costly, it's just not feasible. David, what do you think about this? Does AI offer an advantage to smaller media companies because you would have this kind of big tool? Or does it expense mean that it could disadvantage smaller media companies who maybe can't afford access to it? I think indeed. I mean, from where we are, we have a lot of discussions with a lot of other media and a lot of uh, other users. And so we are, we are listening to them. This gives us a position in the market. And the main thing that comes to, uh, to us is indeed that any tool should be accessible. Any technology should be accessible. Otherwise, it doesn't make it really inclusive uh, and doesn't help the, the, the debate to be inclusive. I mean, yeah, they are, they are, they are great brands uh, already in the market, but frankly, they are. I mean, not everybody can afford to them, and therefore, that's not something that uh, can be used for other people. Other thing that we are hearing as well is that uh, it's. I mean, we are in a human business in the end of the day, and so one kind of really understand not only about the document, but also about the people. I mean, something like influencer mapping, those kind of uh, tools is really kind of tools that uh, all users, specifically your clients, specifically, are looking for, um, and and all that needs to be simple and user-friendly and that's typically where the complexity goes to is how to make complex i mean something complex user-friendly if you have a tool which is 
basically the same as what you already have uh, in uh, on these Zhuzhen websites. You don't really earn something, you don't really win something. So user-friendliness is typically one of the elements. And then I'll just add one point that's coming up as well from uh, our users when we are talking about it. Is I mean, at Euractive, the languages you, that you were referring to, Dave, is kind of a bit our DNA, uh, and, and none of us here, or mo most of us here, don't have English as their native language. I think the institutions are doing a great job in trying to kind of have all the different documents in translate in different languages. Any tool needs to kind of replicate that, I mean, leverage that, that system. And so having this tool translating uh, the, the different process and path, you know, to access different documents is extremely important as well. And so that when, when we manage to have this very complex EU process, simple and inclusive, that's where I feel that we are really making some successes for users, but also for different national media in uh, smaller countries or smaller media. Well, let's go to some questions that have come in from the audience. Um, Laurence, I'll put this first question to you. This is a question from Juliette Lodge. How can you ensure that baked-in bias in data scanned by AI does not lead to inadvertently harmful decisions? This is a question often asked about AI. What would be your answer to that? So basically, there is a, a basic principle in computer science. So if your data are bad, your uh, information will be bad too. So the problem with AI is that you need good data uh, at every stages of the process. So the first process is uh, to the, the data collection. So obviously you can have a really good data set, but if it is wrongly annotated, you won't get a really good result. And why data set can be wrongly annotated? Uh, there are different reasons. So first, first reason is that non-experts annotate the, the data. So that can lead to uh, misleading uh, results. So there are also um, data sets that I uh, annotated are coming from um, what we called uh, crowdsourcing uh, the databases. That's also uh, a big issue because uh, you will never be sure about the expertise of um, the, the, the crowd. Uh, obviously, you don't know if you can trust uh, this. So <clears throat> about the process, um, you have to train a lot the system and to um, evaluate to accuracy of the model. Uh, so it can really well perform during your test with your data training set, but then after you put other data and it will lead to misleading or uh, not a so high level of accuracy. Um, so basically also when you use machine learning supervised uh, tasks, you will get better result. But when you use neural networks, you will never be sure about the result. And even, even the programmers, they don't know which path the data will take to uh, provide the result. And uh, that's why if Although we had a lot, a lot of uh, progress in this field, we need more research and we especially need more research to fit the user needs because technology is 
first and foremost social. It has to be served a social purpose. So that's to find the the, the, the balance, and especially for um, for news media because uh, it is uh, AI. What we, we call that uh, democratic driven. It's not commercial driven. You know, the, the the outcomes are not uh, are uh, is not money. The outcomes are democratic. It's about uh, ensuring to to get the right information. That's really tricky and really complicated. David, you wanted to come in on this question also. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Lawrence. I mean, indeed, I mean, uh, wrong data will lead to wrong AI. Whatever the, the way you do it. Uh, when we're looking at AI, we're obviously looking at other sectors as well, how they are using AI. And one that comes to mind uh, very quickly is uh, finance. Uh, not, I'm not an expert in finance at all, nor even an expert in AI, but what I'm hearing is that on their side, they typically have no too much issue with uh, the quality of the data. Uh, they've been able to fine-tune that a long time. Where the, the issue is arising for them is that AI would basically drive them into one direction. And when you had, I was suggesting, like an army of interns or an army of people working on this, well, that would drive you into a range of different directions. When you have an AI, well, basically everybody's looking at the same view, everybody's looking at the same technology, and that's kind of reinforced a dynamic that could have been a little bit more diversified, and that's centralized a bit the dynamic into something which is very much in one direction. To me, that's kind of a risk that we have to be extremely careful as well in democracy. I mean, there's a risk in finance, it's also a risk in democracy if the eye of the AI is kind of highlighting this, and suddenly you have thousands of people looking at the same AI, that would mean that there will be kind of a, yeah, a, blind, a blind spot or a blind spot somewhere, and that everybody would be looking at same thing. So that's why, I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert, but I feel that AI would have to be complemented with humans uh, on a regular basis to kind of make sure that we're not only looking at what the AI is telling us to look, but we're also kind of making sure with a human check that, okay, we're also checking what's behind that, uh, what's uh, next to that. Michelangelo, you wanted to answer as well? Yes, I think um, you have to think about what does bad decision-making means. And if you look at policy-making, then we're still talking about uh, elected policymakers that have a responsibility to, to look at the data and look at what they've always been doing. So I, I, I'm not afraid of that. I, I, I don't even see how, um, how data or AI could replace that system. I just think that it creates more of a um, level playing field because it enables every policy policymaker to to know what's happening in different institutions. If I come back to the to the example I had before on on uh, 15 years ago, and uh, it was about we had advanced therapies in in the EU, and the Germans were discussing stem cell research. So you know, basically the same topic, and uh, and they didn't know. So that was bad decision making or bad policy making, I think, because um, they could have leveraged that instead of doing their own stuff. Um, and a tool back then could have said, hey, you're discussing this today, by the way, there's you know, your colleague actually from the same party having this position in Brussels while you're speaking in, in, in the Bundestag. Um, so I think there's a lot of upsides. Um, on the other side, and I, I don't have any finance experience, but I've actually medical experience or AI in medical, in medical areas and diagnostics. And what you do there is, and this is heavily regulated, right? Um, what you have to do is you, you, you give an indication to the physician, like, well, this 98% chance of being a tumor but at the end of the day, it's still the physician that looks at it from all his experience and says, yes, it's a tumor or it's not a tumor. We do a surgery, we don't do a surgery. And this is why, why I see that transparency and AI uh, or AI comes in in, po in policy making. So when I look inwards the institutions, I don't think there's a risk uh, of bad policy making. I think there's a lot of chances for better or more informed policy making. And uh, 
If Mia Petra says she likes to have her stakeholders around that, I think it's exactly about, about that, creating that, that space where these positions come together and are visible. And, um, and then uh, on the outward, so to the, what I call user before, or the, the citizen, I think giving, creating the context um, makes also creates more benefits than, uh, than um, creates risk. Well, Mia Petra, here's a question from the audience for you. This question comes from Ray Wright. The risks of bad AI are well known. Good AI, trustworthy, unbiased, and reliable, requires huge, high-quality data sets to train. How can we ensure that benevolent actors have access to good AI? Do you think that legislators, governments, have a role to play here? How do we make sure that the, this type of quality AI is what we're really getting toward? Yes, that's what we really try to work uh, on the data because the AI legislation looks as the, the trustworthy uh, solutions with the help of AI. When you have a risk uh, solutions, risk product, then it needs to be accurate enough. So like the medicines you develop, then you test them and then uh, you use them. Also the AI systems, when they are risky, you need to test them. But on the data, that's the core, that's the raw material. So then we really, really need to have the, the governance structure right. And then we have the legislation for the uh, DGA, the Digital Governance Act, where you actually can create a trustworthy uh, intermediators so that they can intermediate the data from the different sources. Because at the moment, 80% of the European data is not used. It's rest in the silos, it's rest in the companies, maybe even a public sector data, even though there is this transparency uh, or the data you know, sharing uh, legislation in place, also the European level. Secondary use of data, for example, on the health uh, should enable more. So I think this is the way we try to create a trusted ways to share the existing data uh, as data um, uh, production is growing as, as the sensors are and as we are typing and photographing and doing a lot of uh, content. So someone should have the trusted networks to, to use that and, and share that. But if I also can comment the previous question, because I, I think, and also here it was repeated, how to have the unbiased data sets. Uh, amount is one, but then also the, the, the quality, how is it uh, done? But I must also talk in a little bit in favor of using AI, because uh, we always compromise with something. If we don't use technology uh, to help us, like AI, what is another option? Should I, as a decision maker, wait for the official European statistics about the health data when it will be ready to show me the situation of the COVID uh, pandemic at the moment? Because this is what we used to rely on, even our uh, economical policy decision. So what is the best way to uh, the, for the policymakers to do the informed decisions? And whether we comp compromise on the delay or real-time data and the real-time data, then you make some prognosis and you can try with the help of AI. So I would also take that on board, but then have the human oversight or the policymakers oversight. So does it sound reasonable? Uh, 
because other way is that we wait for too long to have accurate data, but the decisions are needed to be taken uh, quite uh, quickly. So that relates to the economical decisions, what are the uh, actual happenings after the war in uh, Russian war in Ukraine, our energy. Uh, so if we only look the energy statistics that will be ready in two years for this spring or next winter. So I, I also very much encourage using uh, data sets and add there some AI, but have an overlook. So having too much problems, 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 we do not use them. And then what? What do we use? We use other guesses. So knowledge is not 100% uh, uh, physical uh, theory that you can use here. It is always compromising and I would encourage using also the possibilities of the AI. Indeed, it's always a compromise. And as Mark Angelo was mentioning, the, the having that human decision maker at the end of the process can help alleviate, I think they call it the, the garbage in, garbage out principle, that if you have bad data, you're going to end up with bad outputs and then bad decisions. But having some kind of human check there can alleviate that. Um, let's take another question from the audience. This one is from Laurence. It's from Gerard Frerichs. Uh, Gerard asks, what is the definition of AI? Is it any set of rules? Uh, it, is any set of rules applied to data AI? Is application software almost the same as AI? When one wants to use AI to produce false data, how do we define false and correct data? How can we ever learn learning AI systems? Kind of maybe a metaphysical question there, but specifically on the definition of AI, how do we define it? How do you define it, Lawrence? So it's really a, a broad uh, domain. So uh, AI can refer to a variety of systems apply in a variety of domains. But basically, it performs tasks um, by mimicking human uh, when he's doing uh, this task. And this task can be various. Uh, in journalism, for instance, it can be used uh, to collect information, to monitor social network, to verify information, to produce automatically contents, uh, to um, to provide uh, personalized contents. As you see, there are plenty of application. Uh, you have also AI, also AI uh, to, for autonomous car, uh, for autonomous driving, uh, to assist. Uh, doctors in the diagnostics so um the, the i think the the fundamentals of AI were always to uh, mimic the human behavior but there are also some dreams in some labs that uh, it's, we would uh, achieve a kind of super ai would be, that would be able to think like a human that's uh, the, the the dystopian challenge um, i think uh, from ai about the data um, how to uh, now about uh, the quality of the data so first of all we need more specialists to assessed data quality and to maintain the data quality in the time. Why? Because the data are just a photography, a picture of a moment. But tomorrow and the day after, it can be 
change. So that's the first uh, thing. The second thing, we can also be transparent about the data by explaining uh, where do the data come from and how they are processed. Um, maybe that uh, providing more explanation about this side would also encourage uh, to get more confidence um, in AI uh, tools in, uh, in general. But these questions are really, really, really broad. And there are some domains uh, where they get really good data, uh, especially, I think, in, in, in medicine. But uh, you have also to deal with uh, the, the data privacy about uh, all of the, the data that concern uh, the people, the citizens. We have a really strong regulation in the EU, and uh, that's really, really good news. But we don't have the same legislation everywhere in the world. And uh, that's something that we have to, 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 to take care on. Uh, and when I talk about data privacy, we have also a kind of uh, other application like mass surveillance, uh, facial recognition, uh, social credit. It is used uh, in China, for instance. Uh, and there uh, it shows in pinpoint uh, how AI could turn in um, in this baddest uh, application, I would say, for the democracy. Mark Angelo, for your company, how do you define AI? I think it's about reproducing what um, what typical professionals in the area of dealing with public policy do. So it starts from really um, the collection the collection of data. And actually, when we look at the development cycles of Policy Insider, uh, my development plan is is very much like my my own careers that I did in 15, 15 years, starting really with understanding where do I get information, what is actual relevant information. And, and then starting to, to put this into, into context and, um, and uh, being able to start to recognize patterns. So you know, if, if I look at, at the end, of, you know, if, when you've done something for 10 years and you see something happening, sometimes it, remind, it reminds you of a debate that has happened before or, or a dossier that has been on the table 10 years and where, where, the same, uh, where the same discussions had happened or the same concerns or then the same outcomes happened. So I think these, these kind of pattern recognition uh, understanding where trends come up where they shouldn't be, you know. Of course, you, ha you, you have these world days for everything, right? So you know that. And if, if policy um, the discussions happen in December around HIV/AIDS, you know that is linked, and it's totally normal. It's happening every year uh, around the what is the third of December, first of December. Uh, whereas if something would happen in, in May, you would know that this is an this is something that has a certain. Um, reason it's not supposed to happen that uh, policymakers start talking about this this topic in that time so you know that there's something happening and i think this is something that you learn and that you can also teach an ai uh, to recognize and when we when we talk about good data or bad data i mean for policy inside we only use um, institutional data so you would suppose that um, it's good data but i remember a, a case I, was it like 18 months ago so at the peak of, of COVID, where you had also a lot of parliamentary questions that were pushing figures that were wrong. And so you have this data set suddenly, and we trained an AI just for fun to see. We wanted to create this, this machine where we said, what, is the, what does the commission think about? Because we, we, trained the, we, we took all the questions or the answers of, of the commission, our selected data set. 
and we would ask um, the tool, you know, what does the commission think is the current state? And we, then we found out that there was this data set used about the number of you know, cases or deaths associated to vaccination. So even if you think you have a good data set, you start to realize that you have to be really careful. Is this now institutional data or is this data that the institutions have uh, taken on board because they have rec received this uh, as a letter or as a PQ that is not validated by any data. So it's it's complicated. Yeah, it's interesting because I suppose the commission just could have been referencing the incorrect numbers exactly. in their answer. Exactly. So, th so then when you read this, you know that. But when you, when you design, um, a, a, let's say, a transparency engine, uh, you have to be aware of all the things that can happen and that are totally normal. Uh, and as you said, they can be referencing saying, no, this, the figure of so many deaths is wrong. Uh, but you read this, you know this immediately. A machine needs to be told that. And then you need to check for all these eventualities uh, where wrong data can happen. So coming back at the medical example, you know, after once you have trained your AI, you, you check it and you see how, how often is it right about what it's, it comes out. Is it, a, you know, if you write 99% of times where you should say it's a tumor, you know it's a tumor and it trains well. So uh, the training is almost, I think the testing afterwards, the real validation is even more important than the selection of data. Well, for a last question to you all, and I think it can kind of serve as con concluding remarks as well. It's a question from Chris Powers uh, that we have here, which is, what next steps would you ask the EU institutions to take to improve their transparency? So let me go to each of you and, and ask this question. It can also serve as your kind of final thoughts uh, for our panel. Uh, Mia Petra, let's start with you. Uh, what concrete steps would you like to see the EU institutions take, uh, particularly involving the use of AI? Uh, and what are kind of your key takeaways also from today's discussion? Well, the, the key takeaway uh, is that I'm one working with the AI Act, and I know the, the uh, definition of the AI has taken several years among the academia, among the business, among the stakeholders. So the, the version out of my hands uh, is uh, pretty good because that uh, better includes also the deep fake solutions which are important to the democracy uh, as some versions leave it out because sometimes AI really I, and I want to finish with the positive note, A, I can detect something that the human being cannot when it's a deep fake. And that is very enthusiastic way also to counteract the deep fakes with the help of the AI. So uh, my takes uh, for the transparency here is that yes, uh, legislative train is, is an, an, an way to really uh, touch the uh, decision making that should be transparent and open for the citizens of Europe. So when we also plan our data and our documents, if they are from the beginning, well designed, open databases, transparently designed algorithms, analyzing it, so they can also improve uh, the way to, for the journalism, for the actors to read the data and then play with it. So I, I welcome, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of the transparent uh, systems for the whole, whole European Union um, uh, data and institutions. And as language was mentioned here, I think the kind of uh, language cloud is something that Europe uh, is, is happy to open also projects on, on that. But all in all, uh, as a policymakers, uh, there is an interaction between the media, transparency, NGO, stakeholders, business lobbyists. So what we can do in the parliament is that we will 
try to make the policies interesting for the citizens and for the media. So we also fight on the media space. So is it prime time debates, uh, something that I used to do in a Finnish parliament with the government every Thursday? Now we have started something similar in the plenaries and debates on the current interesting topics. If everybody is talking about the European challenge and parliament gathers and doesn't touch up the idea, then we can't ask too much the, the please look at this one. And so we need to respond to the actual um, the policy debates uh, as well uh, in the, the parliament as over what, what commission is doing as our business is. So the kind of question and answer uh, uh, sessions with the commission council we re recently tried out. So there is things happening. So also I, I think the uh, uh, drafting legislation on the own initiative uh, is is also that we are now having ideas from the conference for the future. So it really resembles the citizens as well. Uh, and I, I think uh, these kind of actions are uh, evolving and then you try to go on. So it's not only the technology, it's also the content which really makes it important. I think at this stage that we do face challenge, the war in our continent, uh, energy prices, inflation, uh, COVID is still here among us. Uh, there is a great need for the European policies to make them right. So that's also is, is a call that uh, people should have an uh, idea how to follow how the things are developing when they set their hearts on, on the hope for the Europe as well. Laurence, uh, what would be your ideal next steps to increase EU institution transparency? I would say that's the same for AI. Transparency is one thing, but if you put all the information just like that and that you don't explain it, um, you will maybe have some gaps in the understanding. So for AI or for the EU institution, I uh, would invite you to, to go to more explainability. Um, so, thanks, David. What would be your key asks for next steps here? I mean, I'm, first of all, I'm very glad to hear the enthusiasm and the uh, encouragement around AI. I mean, from the institutions, from the academic world, from uh, the different uh, citizens and uh, and and, and yeah, uh, stakeholders in the room and online. Uh, I'm also. Uh, glad to hear it. Yeah, I mean, it was clear, and that's something that really came up out of this debate that we need to kind of uh, uh, complement AI with human uh, uh, aspects. Mark Anger was clear on that, Lawrence as well. So that is definitely something that we will uh, keep in mind and we have to all uh, keep in mind. Um, I think that's uh, the. Uh, uh, if, if your original question was what kind of thing that the institutions could be bringing to that, uh, I think it could also helpful for the institutions, maybe it's kind of wishful thinking here, but to kind of have units to kind of decipher a bit what the data that are available, trying to kind of be the middleman between uh, the, the, the institution themselves and the rest of the stakeholder, try to kind of help them make use, good use of uh, the different data, different documents. Uh, by now, we don't really have much interlocutor. We have to go directly to some of the different units that are producing those documents. Maybe that's something that institutions could do to kind of have this kind of centralization of we are aware of the 
flows and the strength that we have and which we want to kind of promote that, we want to kind of explain that. So this kind of um, yeah, ombudsman or whatever the way we could call it um, could be useful. And yeah, on our sides, I mean, we, we are hearing a lot of uh, good things here. Uh, we have to uh, work hard during the holidays, see a bit what we can do with that and then uh, see what we can uh, come up with uh, after the break to kind of um, help on this debate. Marc-Angelo, what would you like to see from the EU institutions to increase transparency? Speed, I guess. I, I, I agree with Mia Petra about you know, the, the efforts that need to be done on, on presenting the data and structuring, but I think that uh, starting with a, with a data dump that doesn't necessarily need to be totally publicly uh, available also to, to come into what Lawrence said about you know, making sure that uh, people not, not getting exposed and getting the wrong impression of, of this sheer amount of data, but making it available for academics or for s startups like ours um, that, that offer them the, tr the, um, the treatment of these data because um, you can treat unstructured data. It takes a little bit more effort, but you, you can go through it, right? So I think that uh, making inf documents, the outputs of the institutions, available quickly. You know, if you, if you, if you, if you wait for everything to be... To be annotated and well published, then it's going to take you one day, three days, five days to be publicly available. If you wait also for translated versions before you push something, and you're talking a week. And, um, and I think this is in, um, one of the keywords at the beginning was real time. And I think this is, you know, if, if something is, is published, then it should be made available. And then you can still have a process within the institution. And then you can have this race between the institutions and, 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 and the civic society about who provides the best. Um, tools to, to work with this data. But I think making the data available quickly is, is the simplest way of increasing transparency, like, immediately. Makes sense. Well, I want to thank all of our panelists for some great interventions, also some great questions from the audience. Uh, I think, really, this is just the beginning of a journey here, right? I mean, this is an evolving area where we're really thinking in new ways about transparency, but also in new ways about how to organize information. And AI has really opened up all kinds of new possibilities there. It's, uh, it can be a kind of scary prospect, but can, it can also be a very exciting prospect as we think about the new potential that AI is bringing to our daily lives, but also to our civic life in the way that we make laws, in the way that we organize ourselves, and in the way that we try to change the world for the better. Uh, so thank you again to all our panelists. Thank you, you at home, for following along. And I wish you all a very pleasant evening. Thank you.